This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor and Senior Economist to Wisdom Tree, Jeremy Siegel. I'm going to be joined by two of my colleagues at Wisdom Tree today, Jeff Winninger, who's the head of equity strategy, and Li Chen Ren, who is one of our deep China experts and just came back from a summer in China. So we get her her takes on all the stuff happening in the headlines in the second half of the show. Please note, Jeff, Li Chen, and I are registered representatives of Foresight Fund Services. The discussion is not tied to the offer or so of any investment products. We're going to kick off the show, though, with Professor Siegel getting his take. We've got a lot of Fed speakers on the wire, Uh, Professor. Not a lot of data this week, but we last after last week's big data week. Um, But a few a few things in the in in the markets on a little softer tone for the markets. How are you reacting to what you're seeing in the markets this week? Yeah, and uh, I I would uh, like to hear what Li Khan says about China. I mean, you know, some of the recent commentary (laughs) makes you think that, uh, you know, China is going to give up Apple and uh, that's been, uh, you know, the first real source of weakness in Apple relative to the market we've seen in a long time. Are these new threats or not? Uh, it would be very interesting to hear uh, her take on that. My feeling is it's probably blown a little bit out of proportion, but uh, nonetheless, uh, it uh, has affected the market. Uh, no, there wasn't much data. And, and the data that did came in, again, the, the, what we're saying is this economy is is strong. Not overly strong. We have a rebound in, in productivity. We're not overly strong, but uh, we're certainly not dipping into any sort of recession or really a significant slowdown. The estimates for third quarter are still coming in uh, basically north of three. Now, you know, we still have that Atlantic Fed way out there near five. But uh, any, you know, anything uh, three or higher would be, uh, you know, certainly a surprise given what we thought before. And that's why yields continue to press upward. Um, you know, we have the, the, you know, it's come back a little bit, but uh, the 10 year was at, you know, hit 434, now it's 424. The tips, 199. We almost got to 2%, Jeremy. And, and then I think we're 191 right now. But I mean, uh, you know, uh, again, strong economic stronger economic growth and again uh, the as we've been talking about uh bonds because of this inflationary surge we've had over the last year are just not viewed as the greatest hedge in the world especially if inflation is going to pop up into the future so the bonds ability to be a hedge in the economy which uh, so uh caused their yield to continue to go down from basically 2016 to the pandemic is is it has been sharply uh sharply reduced so um you know uh two months ago on, on our program i i shifted saying i thought we're going to be uh, uh at a higher plateau for longer that said i don't think the fed should go higher uh i don't think they will in september um uh and but i don't think they should in november uh, yes, commodity prices have gone up, oil prices come up. We do get the CPI and the PPI next week. CPI ain't going to look so good on a month over month. Expectation is 0.6%. Um, and most of that, of course, is, is from the oil uh, sector. However, core again, 2.2, and the year over year has continued to go down into the low threes, uh, which excludes uh, that's, uh, that's uh, you know, uh, oil oil sector that we had so um uh, uh you know the 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 story this this the story is one that um the fed should hold because there are risks to the economy uh it isn't worth squeezing just to get the last percent or two out of inflation maybe six months or a year earlier there are downside risks in the lending market there's risks uh in the spending market in the delinquencies which are up uh in commercial lending in the repayment of student loans we could go on now 
if they're going to bite in a meaningful way, we should see it not maybe this next week, but in the coming weeks in September and early October. And that would be, uh, you know, a, a time to see whether, you know, the delayed biting of the Fed. But at this particular point, and take a look at that jobless claims again, we don't want to make too much of one month, but uh, it, it did fall, jobless claims, initial jobless claims uh, did fall uh, on uh, in Thursday's report. Again, no early sign from the real data uh, that this economy is, is uh, collapsing. Um, there's also a lot of reports about, I mean, on the Fed being so proud, hey, they pulled out what is sometimes called the immaculate disinflation, uh, lowering inflation without causing any blip uh, in unemployment. Well, there's a three-tenths of a ten blip in unemployment, not too much. We'll see what happens there. Uh, none, none, nonetheless, um, uh, uh, one also has to say that the Fed was certainly responsible for the inflation with its excessive monetary issuance earlier. So, you know, you know, we may give them good kudos for maybe having stopped right this time. And I will admit, higher than I expected and many others when the market was uh, diving in March. But uh, it's stabilized. Commodities have stabilized. Housing prices have stabilized. The money supply is stabilized. And as long as that is stabilized, um, I can see these rates staying at this higher level for longer. For equities, uh, still a tilt upward. Um, uh, flat to tilt upward uh, in IC and uh, for for the end of the year. One other thing I want to talk about GDP. There's one little puzzle that's being solved. A lot of people talked about the fact that all GDP is up. GNI, which is gross national income from the income side, has not been very very light. Well, part of the puzzle is, is solved, and that is uh, payments of uh, interest by the Federal Reserve to banks on their deposits, which soared and was not counted earlier. Uh, it actually closes half the gap between GDP and GNI, and GNI is is revised up, um, still below GDP. We'll see where the final revisions are, but a lot of that very puzzling gap between gross national income, gross national product, which is used by some of the, the bears out there and on the economy is saying we're not as strong as we think. Uh, part of that has uh, been explained. That is interesting. I saw some of those headlines. I was wondering if you had an explanation on that. Very, very interesting. Um, I want to, your, your, your first point on bond correlations to stocks. Uh, and you talked about this in the sixth edition of Stocks for Longer. There's a whole chapter on interest rates being low for longer, but it, the correlation was a key input. I, I thought maybe you could give our, our listeners a little bit more background on that big, important topic of how much that changing correlation you think explains some of the rise in interest rates and what that means for the sort of normal level of interest rates going forward from here. Yeah, it's the most uh, ignored factor of long-term interest rates. Everyone thinks, oh, yeah, we know the Fed influences. Yeah, we know real growth influences. But really, why do people hold 60, 40, or 75, 25 portfolios? It's a hedge. Uh, you, you know, uh, when when there's a crisis, bonds, treasury bonds go up and risk assets go down. And, um, uh, uh, you know, people like that ability. Now, there is one kind of unexpected, I wouldn't you could call it a crisis, but circumstance where that correlation totally breaks down. And that's when the Fed has to fight inflation. Now, up until this recent inflation, we had 40 years of no inflation. And that probability was considered to be very low by most investors. Now that we've had it, you look forward the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you say, whoa, the probability that I'm the Fed may have to do another fight against inflation uh, is much higher. And these bonds are not going to serve as a hedge in that circumstances. So I'm going to have to demand a higher yield to hold them, uh, as opposed to when I thought it was a very remote chance that the Fed would have to significantly tighten to do inflation. That That is my interpretation. I know that not many people have used it. But if you actually plug it into formal finance formulas, um, and for those more technical, it's, it's, you know, what is the return given the beta of, a, of an asset? 
Um, the beta of Treasury bonds went from negative uh, to slightly positive. Um, you know, we have a five-year rolling correlation um, uh, very quickly, of course, as a result of that uh, circumstance in 2022. Will, will not be forgotten uh, soon. Uh, the stomping of bonds and stocks at the same time. And a lot of people that were 60, 40 said, what, what happened? You know, I thought I'm supposed to be protected on my bonds, at least stable when stocks go up. That, that, now they're beginning to say, all right, it's not that great a hedge. Give me higher yields and I'll hold them. And they have to be held, obviously. It's just a matter at what rate. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, does it's that do a little better job at explaining it? Oh, that's great. And it's amazing. Like when you think about the how low yields were negative tips yields and certainly didn't offer any protection. At, wow. And now two percent, you got a different story. And the question is, what's the, what's the right number where they become the positive yeah, I mean, hedge again? Yeah. Yeah. And and, and by the way, don't think you say, well, German tips is against inflation. Don't forget the Fed has to raise real rates. So, you know, they have to tighten. So tips don't really serve. I mean, they, they serve a long run against the inflation, but not against the Fed tighten against it. So those episodes are, are, are affecting tips before. And you're absolutely right. I mean, minus one and a half. And now it's two. That's a three and a half percent. But let us remind investors that in 2000, they were tips, 10 year tips were over four percent. Um, and let us also remind investors, as I did, I believe, last week, if you, you know, tips might, you show I'm more attractive at 2%. 2% takes 36 years to double your money at a 20 PE ratio. And now actually we're below it. And I'm talking about the whole market. I don't even have to do value stocks are probably 16 or less, but 20 PE is a 5% real doubling in 14 years. So there still is on a long-term portfolio, not a lot of competition of bonds from for uh, from bonds uh, um, compared to stocks. Much better than it was, obviously, three years ago, to say the least. Um, but more in line with historical perspectives, and uh, there is still a meaningful gap between the two. Well, Professor, thanks for kicking us off to start the show. Have a, a good weekend. Thank you very much, Jeremy. I'm going to turn over the conversation to my colleague, Jeff Winnegar, who is head of equity strategy and is very active on Twitter at Jeff Winnegar. You could follow him. He, uh, he's got a number of viral posts going on, and I thought he'd be a good guest to come talk about what he sees in some of these markets. Jeff, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thanks, Jeremy. Well, what, what you heard from the professor on uh, his outlook on the economy, you've been writing a bit about the jobs market in one of your uh, sort of popular threads. What's your mm -hmm. take on what you see in the job market as you see the key indicators for the economy? What, what What's your sense? Well, and I'll see if I can piggyback on some of the things I took in, in the note taking I just made for 10 minutes of Siegel or some of the concepts I think do play in. He, he made a reference to the great moderation. Uh, he didn't call it that, but he made a reference to that when he said there was the 40 years of generalized disinflation. And it, that was certainly the case in the, in the post-global financial crisis era. Um, and look, Jeremy, the VIX is sitting at 13 right now. So it's not it's not like we exactly have a volatility regime right now. Then again, it's been a generally tame year. The SVB stuff and the signature bank stuff has been swept under the rug since those started to, to collapse back in March. But one of the things that I think is critical is, is that in those all this great moderation that we experienced basically for our entire lifetime with an asterisk on the global financial crisis, I guess, Jeremy, um, was because the monetary regime was quote unquote normal. Now, many of us <laughs> would have been uh, calling the bluff of the Alan Greenspans of the world in prior years. But what we saw in the monetary mechanism during COVID was truly astounding, man. I mean, they, they shot up and I know you were putting these charts around left and right. I mean, we shot M2 money supply, we up 26.9% to my recollection during the COVID money splash. And now it's down 
on a year-over-year basis, 3.x percent. I think it's 3.6 or 3.7 percent. And so we have these charts, various charts, where your y-axis has, you needed to adjust it (laughs) to reflect what has become a a very sclerotic regime. So when it comes into the, to tie it into what you were asking about the jobs market is, is that right now we're in a very, very stable situation with respect to jobs. I mean, they just gently melted the, um, the unemployment rate up to 3.8. Nobody's really concerned just yet. As Siegel pointed out, the Atlanta Fed, I think the Atlanta Fed on GDP has a five handle on it. Um, and that was up near a six handle as of maybe four or five weeks ago. Um, but I worry, I worry that in trying to tame when they realized Things got out of hand with the inflation and the eight and nine dollar Cheerios and so forth. Now that we have money supply in contraction, the key question, the key concern, the key driver of macro right now is what will the lagged effect be of taking money from zero to five and a half in a matter of 18 months? Is the labor market whistling past the proverbial graveyard. I'm worried about it. We do have a labor shortage. Maybe that gives us a nice, I don't know, called a put option on 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 eek unemployment in this cycle, whereby we don't get to a 10 handle like we did during the global financial crisis. But do we back up the unemployment rate to five, six, or seven, surprising many? I suspect it's a distinct possibility. Well, and your tweet that uh, went a little viral was the job market will weaken from here. And then you had a nine, it was a nine tweet thread on the different charts mm-hmm. that you think were going to make it weaken. So I guess the first chart was banks and lending standards. Talk a little bit about what you see in the tightness of lending standards, how that's what that signs for this unemployment rate. And you're seeing that uh, uh, across various indicators. You look at the Fannie Mae surveys where they ask, would it be easy for you to get a mortgage right now if you were to just go apply for a mortgage? And um, the answers are now approaching multi-year or survey level highs. Now, those surveys were starting to only be conducted inside the last generation, but still disconcerting. And the reason is because you can't qualify for a mortgage when the, the typical mortgage qualification in this country went from 48,000 to 100 and something in a matter of what 24 months and you, you can you can't get away from people citing the credit card interest rate data Jeremy which has popped what six or 700 basis points in six or eight quarters the auto loan costs uh, and so forth and the reality is that the banks are logically when, when you want to do us a, give us a bunch of 75 basis point uh, interest rate hikes every six weeks and give us over 500 basis points in aggregate gapping in in the cost of overnight money. Yes, the Fed senior loan officer survey will tighten and it has been tightening. Most people don't realize this since the fourth quarter of 21. In fact, we have a lot of data that we're starting to look at where you say, wow, this chart started turning on me 12 months ago, 18 months ago, 24 months ago. What is the lag? You know, you start getting into a situation where you have on net, I think it's the third highest net tightening of standards in aggregate on record in data back to probably, I think it's back to like the Gulf War. That's not going to probably sustain a full employment situation. I don't, I don't know if it's the end of the world, but I think that we're maybe pulling blinders over and thinking a 3.8 on an unemployment rate is something that has staying power on account of, and I think that this is critical, on account of people are extrapolating forward the employment regime of of acute COVID into 24 and 25. And that, that regime, Jeremy, this is critical. This is absolutely critical. Was this concept of, all right, I have this staff here. I've got two dozen workers and Smith and Thompson just both quit on me last week um, here at my coffee shop uh and now i have no resumes coming in no applications here at the coffee shop i'll just hire anybody and you know what that other employee i have anderson i don't know let's give a name to this person anderson i should fire anderson but smith and thompson just quit on me so i won't fire anderson even though anderson is a complete incompetent 
because I don't know that anybody is going to put an application here at the coffee shop. So therefore, I will hoard workers in the year 2021, 2022. How much is that going to fray? I think we're starting to see some indications in that. The best way to find the indications on that, Jeremy, is I think it's in that thread. Yeah. The, the 12 rolling hiring plans on the Challenger Gray and Christmas. It shows a clear, it, basically to anybody listening on, on audio here, it looks like a mountain with a big spike and a bend. Then you ski down the mountain back to normal levels. We are back at normal levels on Challenger hiring plans because the hoarding is over. Yeah, we haven't really seen that that pickup in unemployment was from people coming back to the labor force. You haven't seen big, big jumps in jobless claims, but uh, you're, you're seeing anecdotes. You're seeing a little bit of, of things. You saw Walmart this week say they could lower their their pay, payments for some of their, their entry-level people. Um, you're seeing a little bit even in our industry, Goldman Sachs is rumored today to be letting go a, a big, big amount of of their workforce again, uh, which is a continued thing. Maybe that's just a rumor, but you're, you're seeing some signs of that from our hometown. There was a big auto company that uh, I think filed for bankruptcy, Jeff, in South Florida, 800 people uh, lost their jobs down there. So you're definitely seeing some signs of this weakness coming up. And look, it might not, you know, you always want to make sure you don't go down into a, uh, into the into a doom hole when you I got these indicators and you're looking at charts all day. I mean, here's some of the reality is is that in Silicon Valley, the wave of layoffs that was really a last year September, October, November, December situation. So Silicon Valley may have gotten through culling the herd, and that was really the that was really the bear case back on Meta at the time when the stock had been tumbling. Zuckerberg came in and dumped a bunch of people. So maybe we've gotten through a chunk of this in the tech sector. The other one, Jeremy, I mean, you're referencing Goldman. Where was our sentiment inside this industry, the industry by which you and I are employed, around, let's say, April or May? Well, we didn't know if there was going to be another regional bank going under tomorrow in tomorrow's session back then. I mean, it looked, I mean, at the time, there were everybody was a candidate back in April because um, all that stuff was mid March getting, um, in a state of collapse, you're starting to see it, um, some real weakness in our own sector, but it hasn't for the most part, aside from some of these one-offs really played out just yet. I mean, I think I saw something come across the wire with, with KPMG was doing something, but I don't know if it was on net restrictive or, or expansionary on the, on the job side, but the consultants too, starting to get some headlines there, Jeremy. Jeff, you, you're known, I'm going to still call it Twitter versus X because uh, it's still how I think of it. But you've been known on Twitter as one of the ultimate housing bears. Uh, some of your, your tweet threads that go most viral is, is Jeff's doom porn is what I would call it on housing. But tell me, what 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 do you think is happening in housing? What's your current sense? Um, you know, it's been resilient. This case Shiller index that we talk about a lot has been ticking higher. It bottomed, it ticked higher. This was one thing that... We, we feed into our lower inflation numbers, our alt inflation series that we've been calculating with the professor, you know, shows only 0.6 headline and 1.6 core because we're using a 1% shelter inflation instead of the 7.8% official BLS numbers. But yeah. uh, it's surprising, I say, with 7.5% mortgages that Case Shiller keeps ticking higher. What's, what's your sense? Is what, how do you assess the current housing market? <laughs> What if I have a Saturday flea market with a hundred vendors setting up a table and a hundred customers walking through a bustling Saturday, Saturday flea market. And then the next summer I come back and there's 50 vendors and 50 customers, but the prices have remained the same because we still have a match between the buyers and the sellers. What, what is the word to describe that? Because that's what the housing situation is. It's this proverbial flea market um, to, to paint a visual on this, whereby the prices are still 100 cents on the dollar for the most part. Some of it's weakening down in Texas. There, there had been some sell-offs in California earlier this year. But generally speaking, the prices are still there. But is the, is the, is the portent that is bearish or pessimistic in housing is at the prices, which I think ultimately will be, but it's not right here at time zero, 
or is it an activity situation? And we had started to see the labor deterioration and, of course, the mortgage lending business. That was about seven quarters ago. The real the re, uh, the realtors have started to decline the ranks of the National Association of Realtors, whereby we had at the peak there, Jeremy, one percent of our entire labor force was a card carrying holder, card carrying member of the National Association of Realtors, exceeding the global financial crisis peak in that sector. Most most quote unquote realtors are not full time realtors, though, however. So that is one of the asterisks on that. My concern is that sooner or later, this equal match between the buyers and sellers becomes a mismatch. And this is critical because it's we've never had to confirm. It's so funky that you have to really you can't put it in the context of prior housing bubbles or housing cycles. And look, we're just you know, we're macro guys we're from an ETF operator. We just you know, this is stuff that's interesting. People want to talk about it. So we look into it. I'm you know, not a classically trained housing expert. I'm just a guy who's been doing this my whole career. And here's the reality. You know, I came across a study, I think it was from the NAR, I'm not sure who did it, but basically when you take the cohort of people who are buying a home, Jeremy, 87% of people who buy a home do so with a mortgage. Surprise, surprise. But of the homes that are owner occupied and owned free and clear that's 39 percent of the housing stock people don't realize this and i think part of the reason they don't realize this is because a lot of research gets written in places like manhattan and london and san francisco and they don't realize that out in the heartland a ton of people own the place outright the mismatch is there's not much of the the, the so-called golden handcuffs on you if you own the house the house is two hundred fifty thousand dollars you're going to sell it. You're going to move into an apartment because you're a retiree. You're going to downsize and buy some smaller apartment. What do you care about interest rates? But the person who's going to buy this $250,000 house, which is a starter home, they're taking out a mortgage. And we just shocked mortgage rates by 450 some odd, we'll call 450 basis points. You know, a 30-year conforming was at two and three quarters during COVID. Good old days. And where did I pull them? What was it on Mortgage News Daily the other day? 733 or something like that on a mortgage. So here you have this cohort. 39% of homes are owned free and clear. Who owns those homes? It's not a 25-year-old newlywed who owns this house outright. It's a 70-year-old retiree who's, who paid the thing off. They bought it back in 1995. If it was in the Carolinas or Texas, they got it for cheap. If it was in Georgia, if it was in most parts of Florida, it was cheap. If you bought that in 1995, by any standard of what they're selling stuff down in Florida. Jeremy, have you seen what's going on in South Florida on these prices? <laughs> I occasionally look. <laughs> I, you know, I left South Florida. When did I leave South Florida? Basically, two decades. It's unbelievable. It's basically like California now on the home prices down there. It's um. So you have these people that are that have a ton of equity. They want to move downsize because you know they don't have any retirement savings. And if they go to sell that four bedroom house to buy the two bedroom apartment, sooner or later this is going to top one, and it's going to have more buyer or more sellers than buyers. And that's when you see the home price deflation. We'll see when that comes to pass. Yeah, it's interesting your your point that when mortgage rates go back down, usually people think of that as supporting of the sort of local housing markets. But when if in this case, it's because people kind of feel trapped in some ways. Um, a lower mortgage might actually bring a lot more supply and might actually be negative for the housing market. A lot of interesting stuff going on in this in this cycle. You know, one of the things we've been both talking about a lot has been, and it's tied to this mortgages and to rates and all these dynamics is what's happening in, in the bank stocks. And there's uh, what, somebody I was just following talked about some of the banks are not the, the the technicals the charts don't look good so a big bank like city is coming back to some of the lows the last three years and not looking like a very good uh dynamic what's happening there. but i i you, talk, you think about the the bank situation where they're paying you on the deposits they're not paying you on deposits you know you're you're mm-hmm. you're earning zero when you could be earning five and a half percent in treasuries what do you think is happening in these banks is is how much concern do you have in the bank system? Well, look, it, it, 
you oftentimes mentally anchor to your last crisis. And that's something that we all do as human beings. And so you never want to see a situation where you're, you, you, the Federal Reserve decides to hike interest rates in, in what is essentially the most aggressive tightening cycle since Volcker's second round there back basically when I was being born. Um, and you, you instinctively start thinking Bear Stearns and Lehman. I, I don't know that I, I don't know that it's the, the wisest idea to be going jumping that gun. As I've been pointing out for some time with the so-called bank walk, the bank walk, I think, may have been quelled by essentially, we were told by officialdom, that you are money good over and above the FDIC max. Where where you used to have it was two hundred fifty thousand dollars. SVB goes under. You've got a million dollars sitting over there in a in a in a bank account, and you're saying, Ooh, "Am I going to lose seven hundred fifty k here?" But then they made the SVB depositors whole, and so I think that that you know whatever moral hazard that may have created may be another issue. But I think that that kind of calmed down the bank wall. And not only that, to the extent that the bank walk was occurring, I hope I'm, I don't need to define terms by now. I've probably the, the listener has figured out what the bank walk means, walking away from your bank, not running. A lot of what was going was they're walking away from First National Bank of insert your town here and depositing it over J.P. Morgan was essentially what it was, what was happening under the under the too big to fail rubric whereby if you were to take a million dollar hit on your deposit at JP Morgan, the state would never let that happen. And then therefore 250K didn't apply to you. So walk out of the regional bank and into JP Morgan or the hands of city and so forth. Now, one of the things that's intriguing about this tightening cycle and and the, the dynamics of it is, and I was just pointing this a week ago, Wells is paying 15 basis points on small time deposits. Uh, B of A is paying a basis point, right? And somebody else that was a too big to fail, like uh, I think it was J.B. Morgan was paying a basis point. And so you could take this business model from here until the cows come home so long as you got 5% on, on overnight money. Why would I at First National Bank of Wenigerville, why would I even bother lending into commercial real estate if i can take deposits at one basis point i could just turn back around and get a five handle <laughs> in the money markets i could just pocket that spread and ride that thing um Huge. all the way until you know some future date so that's one of the intriguing things about the banking business model i think that's why at least now you never know what the future holds and i do think we're going to see problems in credit in 24. I, I don't know that hearkening back to Bear Stearns and Wachovia and all that is necessarily the framework for this cycle. Things are just, it's really difficult to compare it to that old cycle. It's just things are upside down. Jeremy, think about what Siegel was just talking about, the 2022 action, the relationship between fixed income and equities. It got turned on its head. Yeah, A lot of turned on their head of late. And I think people just need to kind of make sure they don't operate in this 07 to 09 framework and just try to think about the way conditions are now and some of these funky setups. Banking has a funky setup for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a bit worried that the profits are going to come under pressure over time from these higher rates. I'm just not sure people are going to live with those zero rates forever. I think people will be looking for, for other solutions. When when you just we talked a lot of macro, we talked housing, we talked jobs, we talked banks a little bit. Bill, give me how you think this boils. You heard Siegel's view: twenty PEs, five percent earnings yields for the S and P. How are you thinking about the equity setup? As we, we talked a little bit macro, but you're head of equity strategy. Give us, give me your mm -hmm. your view of what's happening and how you be thinking about the equity markets today. Well, I mean, one of the one of the things that was a positive was we really did wash out a lot of the garbage back in 22. I mean, there were there were a lot of names that that really did tank 80 to 90 percent um, in that bear market, uh, a bear market, which looks like it ended 11 months ago. Now, we've, we've got headwinds. Um, I mean, and this is across all risk assets, you know, like, you know, thinking about uh, apartments with a cap rate of five. Well, I can get five in the money market. So think about the S&P. When, when we had the COVID crash on the S&P, 
at the at the bottom of that six week crash, the the dividend yield on on the broad market went down to two point two two point three. Well, two two point two was two hundred and twenty over zero, zero in money markets. Um, the the trough on a ten year treasury was zero point six, and so though there's no yield in the broad market, it made some good Tina sense. There is no alternative to fixed income. Was the refrain. Now, I mean, we we do have these we have these headwinds, right? Is it or maybe we're heading into a soft landing? Maybe we're heading into a recession? I don't know. I've got my theories. I think it's a recession, but I've been wrong before. But the reality is, is that in overnight money, where you put your head on the pillow and you don't have to think twice, you get five and a half, and the dividend yield, courtesy of the rally in the market, which has doubled the broad market since those March twenty March twenty twenty lows. It's three and a half years. We doubled it. Here at a 1.5 dividend yield now. So rather than 220, 230 over cash, you know, you're several percentage points under cash on this trade-off. Do I want A or do I want B? That, I mean, that's the single biggest headwind. I mean, I, I'm not too concerned about these visions of $248 in S&P earnings for 2024 being revised down to 230 or 220 because they revise them down every year. That doesn't surprise anybody. That's not really a bearish portent that they're overestimating it. So I find some solace in that. I do just wonder, are we encountering one of those periods where you wake up five or 10 years later, nobody's really gotten decimated, but it's been a frustration period of time. We had one like that from 1968 to 82 in the market, where it's ups and downs and ups and downs, and you wake up and the Dow or the S&P is right back where it was most of a generation before is that something that we could confront the 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 good news as it presents to us now as opposed to um you know the back part of 21 when it was time for the stock markets to start falling apart is at least now when you engage with your eyes open on that is well you get four and a quarter on your tenure from from your starting point of maybe maybe secular inflation is two or three maybe, let's say it's four and you make, let's say secular inflation is four and you make four and a quarter on a 10 year. You're not setting off any fireworks, but it's not the end of your life. It's not the end of the world. So at least we got that on the fixed income side. Um, For an equity guy mean, talking fixed income, it's a, it's an amazing proposition. It just tells you where we Tina, are. Tina, Tina, no, I'm not referencing Tina Turner here. You know, she just recently, she's recently passed on unfortunately talking about the, there is no alternative trade and and tina has faded in most of these economies it, it will be um the obstacle we'll have to see the only way to get out of it is you have to grow into these pe multiples which aren't the worst case scenario a 20 pe isn't isn't we've had it a lot worse but you have to grow into it a little bit well, we didn't get to talk. One of our favorite topics, Jeff and I both like to talk Japan. It's one of the few places where Tina still exists, where they still have negative rates. Maybe they're going to go above negative rates soon. There's some speculation. They they don't like the huge weakness in the currency, 147 on the end. Uh, maybe they're going to try to move the negative rates. We'll see coming soon. Lee I want to start with the news of the week, which is... You know, Apple's been under a lot of pressure. Uh, it was down 7% in just a few days on some of these headlines saying that some of the government employees couldn't use the iPhone. You tweeted out some things thinking some of this was an overreaction. What is your sense of the Apple story? Thank you. And as this is indeed a, a important story, particularly in the context of uh, US-China competition. First, I think... Uh, uh, the government's uh, ban, which, by the way, is only reported outside China. You know, in, uh, domestically, there was not a, a actual, you know, official. But the truth is, in the last couple of years, uh, government and SOE top SOEs, the the directive has been not using foreign branded devices. So that's been going on uh, for a while. So actually, you know, this. So if there's this official ban, the actual impact will be pretty uh, small. So on that news front, it, it's, I think, uh, it's an overreaction. Um, but in terms of tying Apple to the other news about Huawei, which is getting back to competing with Apple 
um, in the high-end uh, cell phone business in China. That is indeed uh, one of the um, bigger news uh, for China and for Huawei, because four years ago, before Huawei was uh, sanctioned, it was its uh, market share of high-end um, cell phone was close to Apple. So they were very, you know, very good in in making high end phones, uh, particularly in attracting Chinese uh, up uh, up like uh, higher up consumers. And now um, they have a little bit uh, breakthrough. I I wouldn't say it's a huge breakthrough like in the media, but there is a breakthrough. the The interesting thing is the breakthrough itself, the technology itself, is not necessarily uh, groundbreaking uh, because it it requires a higher cost to make uh, some of the chips that Huawei is going to use in his in their high-end phone. But what's really uh, important, I, I believe, is that now this is a, could be a commercially viable uh, technology breakthrough. This is where I think China is very different uh, from uh, Russia, that for China to have a technology breakthrough, it not, no, not only has to be able to match um, to a certain degree, you know, the U.S. technology, but also needs to be commercially viable. So I think on that, it, it is uh, indeed uh, the big news. Uh, I think Apple is a challenge is not really Chinese government. It, it's its actual challenge is Huawei. Can they still keep uh, this very high market share in China of the high-end uh, cell phone business? Yeah, there, there's talks about are did Huawei get around some of the sanctions? How do they get around it? Are there companies that facilitate that? I'm sure this is not the last of the story we've heard, but I, you know, in 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 some ways, bringing it out to the broader relationship of U.S. and China. You know, I, I've been saying the only thing that unites U.S. politicians is who can try to be tougher on China. What do you think about the U.S.-China relations? Like, what do you see from the China side? What do you see from the, your your experience here in the U.S. Yeah, I think uh, first there's a short run and uh, very short term and then long term uh, uh, situation. Over long run, clearly the uh, the baseline has to be for both sides uh, uh, going to be in a very cool, uh, I w- wouldn't say hostile, but very cool relationship for the next you know, decades, uh, probably two decades. Uh, it's not going to get a significant better. Uh, both sides are. Uh, they continue going to talk and trade, but at the same time, actively preparing, you know, for the worst. So, you know, one easy way to look is that even in areas that China and the U.S. could work out um, benefit people, both in U.S. And China, which is, you know, direct flights uh, situation, it's only back to 10 percent of uh, 2019 level, which um, if you look at China versus other countries, uh, including European countries, it's closer to you know 80 to 100 percent back to normal of 2019 level. So even on this, you know, very small thing that could be, you know, less political, yet there's very little cooperation. So, you know, one can imagine for all this slew of other issues, uh, China and the U- U.S., is on the long-term technology and economic uh, competition relationship. So this long-term baseline is definitely very cool. Um, In the short run, actually, there is a a little bit of uptick. Um, If you look at Chinese media right now, you can see that the state media is actually actively toning down uh, anti-US technology uh, messages in Chinese social media. Um, it's mainly because of two things. Um, U.S. and China right now want to use the window between now and uh, end of year to get something done uh, for a possible meeting between President Xi and President Biden uh, in the end of year. So if, if obviously, if there's nothing that gets worked out, then they may not meet, which will be even you know bad news. But right now, at least you can feel both sides is trying to find something. Um, there's also an election in Taiwan uh, in January, early January 2024. So both sides in is in the wait and see mode uh, right now, between now and next beginning of the year. So I think uh, overall, definitely not a, not a good relationship. And I, I think it can only go go worse. So in terms of the 
observation? I mean, you just traveled across these nine different cities. Uh, tell us, what did you see on the ground? What do you think about that? what that means for the health of the China economy? A lot of speculation about the real estate markets, about the health of the consumer, the reopening. What did you see on the ground? Yeah, so before the trip, I um, wrote down my own assessment of China because I haven't been to China for four years. And, you know, to look at China from so far away, I was worried, you know, did I miss something? So before I, uh, before the trip, I, my assessment, uh, which people who follow me on Twitter uh, knows this was my assessment as well. Um, so I'm not just saying right now. Uh, so my assessment was China's real estate is on a very long-term, gradual, painful slowdown. And uh, there will be a few real estate companies that can survive, but several of them, uh, even big ones, uh, will will go uh, bankrupt in the future. Um, the local governments are very tight on money for two reasons. One is uh, real estate land sales is one of the big part of their um, income, and then now they don't have it anymore. And then they also spent you know significant money doing the test uh, during the zero COVID. But actually, the second part is not the main. The main thing is the real estate slowdown um, is making local governments really tight on money. And there are a few bright spots uh, in new new energy, like electric vehicles, uh, bio, biotech investment, and even though we've heard um, actually this month the export um, is not as uh, positive, but I think uh, it did beat uh, expectation, which uh, actually it's one of the areas I think uh, people may be a little bit too uh, pessimistic on the exports. So anyway, um, the way I think of China growth is slowing and uh, trudging along. But not too good, but also not too bad. I don't believe the peak China narrative. I think China is going to still grow uh, slightly better than the world average. Um, and I'm happy to say that the trip uh, didn't change this assessment, which uh, is comforting in myself because, uh, I mean, I am worried, you know, by looking at China from outside China for a while and did I miss something? There was another thing that surprised me um, was the degree of uh, lying flat from younger generations uh, under the high housing price and the lack of uh, good white collar jobs. Many of them now living with parents and uh, unwilling to take higher paying job but lower status uh, blue collar jobs. So this is uh, to yes. Lying flat is like the concept of like a millerista in Spain, right? Can you define that a little bit for the listeners? Yeah, so lying flat, I think it's uh, started from China uh, and now it's going global. Essentially, um, younger generation are facing higher housing costs and also a lack of uh, white collar jobs. I think uh, there's a certain status associated with working with white collar jobs, but the the pay uh, is lower than a lot of blue collar jobs. Actually, that is, you know, in in the U.S. certainly um, is also getting uh, you know more true. So I think uh, in younger generation they they are not as uh, you know driven in some way. Uh, because there's this sense that you know, no matter how how much you you work for it, it it's just so hard to overcome uh, some of the hurdles. So the we, we worry about that kids, everywhere. I worry about it's the U.S. keeping up with China and all these engineers are graduating in 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 Asia. Uh, you know, we wonder do we have the hustle? But it's interesting to hear that coming there. Um, I, I want to get some of this. Uh, so there's this macro take that it, things are going, they're sort of just trudging along was the words you used. Um, and not too hot, not too cold. Thinking real estate's going to be painful. What do you think it means for people looking at China as an investment to try to wrap up all your, your views, the relationship, the tensions? How do you think about short-term, long-term? What's the risk? What's the opportunity in thinking about allocating to China? Yeah, so... I think two things. One is we want um, uh, when we thinking about China, and my colleague Jeff and I have been talking, you know, for early on, 
that China is likely going to be viewed separately uh, versus the rest of emerging market. And you know, we've we've come out with strategies, uh, emerging market strategies, several of them uh, that has different. Uh, some of them exclude China directly, and some of them have a lower allocation to China. Some of them have a full allocation to China. So I think. Uh, this will become more popular. I know we are, you know, not we're probably early to it, but I think more, more and more people will realize that looking at China separately, just like you know, people look at the U.S. separately, is likely the future way of portfolio construction. And the second thing is, um, for people who are taking more active plays, uh, there probably um, room for ha- for some kind of a dynamic hedging of a Chinese currency. We have a, a emerging market multi-factor strategy where we use uh, technical factors like momentum volatility um, uh, on markets influence on currency. And these factors right now at the short run uh, monthly um, is pointing at uh, continued weakness uh, this month. And we are currently 100% uh, hedged against uh, the Chinese currency. So I think, uh, I think uh, more of these specific to China uh, strategies will, will become more prevalent uh, when people are thinking about investing in China. Yeah, I think it's, I, I, I agree generally on this uh, ex-China concept. I mean, I think the tension there makes it hard. Um, but, you know, there's definitely people who think tactically, maybe get so, we get too much of this uninvestable narrative, that becomes an opportunity. So figuring out how do you control your China allocation, I think, uh, does make a lot of sense, separating it out. Uh, you saw, saw Jeff, Asia X Japan, when Japan was going from the 1980s, you know, to the peak and, and then the bubble phase, people were looking at Asia X Japan as a big one. This is, I think, the next evolution of that. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. Li Chen, it's been a while since we've had you on Behind the Markets. It's great to get your local take. If you haven't followed Li Chen Ren on Twitter, she or X, she is a very good follow to give her interpretation of what's happening in the headlines versus the reality. I think she always brings a very useful ground to take on all that. It's good to have her opinion on the program. Jeff, thanks for staying with us for the hour. Uh, Dion, thanks for helping us on the soundboard in the studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. You can listen to us in our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 